4: Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF or F O F Friends on Fridays. This Friday we will broadcast John Zipper's Week to Week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipper.
3: I'm John Zipperer, host of the Week to Week program at the Commonwealth Club. This week, in light of the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage, we present a program from 2014 in which attorneys David Boys and Ted Olson discuss their strategy for legalizing same-sex marriage in California and across the country. Let's listen in as they talk with moderator Gavin Newsom, California's lieutenant governor.
1: Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know. I'm Mary Cranston, past chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and the retired senior partner of Pillsbury-Winthrop Shaw-Pittman, a law firm, and your chair tonight. Uh, You can find us on the internet at commonwealthclub.org, or download your iPhone and Android app for program and schedule information and podcasts of past programs. And now, on to today's program. Exactly one year ago today, on June 26, 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a pair of landmark decisions, striking down the Defense of Marriage Act and eliminating California's discriminatory Proposition 8, reinstating the freedom to marry for gays and lesbians in California, and in turn, set off a chain reaction for marriage equality throughout the United States. Tonight, we will meet the two attorneys who won that case. And we will commemorate the Supreme Court's decision and discuss its impact going forward. To introduce tonight's distinguished speakers and our distinguished moderator, it is my great pleasure to introduce a man who is actively campaigning for gay rights and marriage equality. Tonight, he is not here as Mr. Sulu or any other character but as himself. Actor-activist George Takei and his husband Brad Takei have been married. George and Brad have been married since September 2008, prior to Prop 8 taking effect in California. They remain committed to fighting for human rights and ending anti-gay bullying. Please welcome George Takei.
0: Oh, my. <laughs> California. Hawaii, Connecticut, the District of Columbia, Illinois, Iowa, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, these and 12 other states now have marriage equality. 16 countries have laws that allow same-sex marriage or domestic partnerships. And in this country, a number of states are now awaiting appellate court judgments yet to come. There is indeed change afoot in the political and social climate of this country. Tonight, I'm so proud to introduce the two attorneys who joined forces to win a Supreme Court decision that has indeed altered the American landscape forever. They have also written the new book, Redeeming the Dream, about that landmark decision and the future of marriage equality in the United States. David Boyce and Ted Olson have been called America's legal odd couple. (laughs) Their pairing is certainly the most unlikely in civil rights history. David Boyce, a Democrat, Ted Olson, a Republican, vigorously faced each other in the Bush versus Gore case in 2000 and later came together because they decided human rights were more important than partisanship. Both gentlemen have made Time Magazine's list of the world's most influential people and both are highly regarded. Litigators. David Boyce is chairman of Boyce, Schiller, and Flexner, a law firm with offices in New York, Washington, D.C., California, Florida, Nevada, and New Hampshire. His credentials include serving as chief counsel for the U.S. Judiciary Committee, counsel to the FDIC, and special counsel for the U.S. Department of Justice. He holds a law degree from Yale. Theodore Ted Olson is a partner in the law firm of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher's Washington, D.C. office. He has served as Solicitor General of the United States, was Assistant General Attorney in the U.S. Department of Justice, and private counsel to Presidents Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. Mr. Olson received his law degree from the University of California at Berkeley. Tonight they will be in conversation with another individual who doesn't sample the political climate before taking a principled stand. <laughs> Gavin-, <laughs> Gavin Newsom is California's 49th Lieutenant Governor and the former twice-elected Mayor of San Francisco. In 2004, after only 36 days as a mayor, Mr. Newsom gained worldwide attention by granting marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Those marriages were later annulled by the California Supreme Court, paving the way for Proposition 8's adoption by voters in 2008 and its defeat before the highest court in the land exactly one year ago today. Welcome to 2014. And now, please welcome David Boyce, uh, Ted Olson, and Gavin Newsom.
5: Thank you, George. Thank you. And thanks to all of you. Thank you to everybody for uh, taking the time out to to be here. And uh, in particular, thanks to whoever the hell scheduled this one year to the day. Uh, they deserve a raise, uh, was, whoever's listening. Pride Week in San Francisco. Remarkable how far we've come, as George was reminding us. Ted and David, thank you both for uh, taking the time out of a book tour. I've seen you on the Colbert Report. I've seen <laughs> you. Uh, by the way, it didn't go well for me when I was on there. So <laughs> congrats. Uh, Charlie Rose, hell, you've been everywhere in the last uh, uh, nine or ten days or so and I know you're off to LA tomorrow and uh, we're very grateful. You took the time to to stop here And, and I've, I've watched some of the interviews. I've listened to them, and you know everyone talks. I think uh, Quite lovingly about this relationship this notion of an odd couple but seriously. I mean after Bush v. Gore uh, There was no way you guys were sort of hanging out on the golf course uh, <laughs> a year or two later I mean how did it come about that you started to repair to the extent that I'm not overstating it? a relationship, if not between the two of you, between your friends and allies and supporters that I imagine had some deep-seated animus and developed a lot of resentment around that case on both sides. Um, How did you begin to repair that relationship to create the conditions where you were in a position, Ted, to make that phone call to David to include him in this process?
2: Well, we were opponents but not enemies. I watched David work and his representation of Vice President Gore and the team that he led. I had great admiration for what they did, how they did it, and who they were representing. Um, and we engaged with one another because we often had to make speeches or appear on television and explain our clients' point of view. And these were contentious times, of course, it was a very, very intense five-week period. Uh, and, it, and it extended beyond that because it tore the... people. The, the, the country up a little bit, um, it's something that, that contentious. I figured it was among the three most contentious presidential elections in history. After the election was over, uh, I was nominated by President Bush to be Solicitor General of the United States. And I wasn't the most popular person among the Democrats in the United States Senate. So the process of the confirmation, which is never pretty anyway was going to be kind of um, contentious is a mild word. David volunteered to talk to his former boss, Senator Kennedy, and speak up for me. Uh, When I was finally confirmed by an overwhelming 51 to 47 vote, (laughs) David came to my swearing in at the Justice Department. Uh, We got together on a few occasions, the fall of that year, I won't spend too much time uh, our wives became um, friends. Um, we've done things together. We both enjoy um, the law. We really believe in the law. We believe in the process of the law. Uh, we may we, we agree that sometimes we'll disagree about decisions, but I think we have mutual respect. We the law is a is a blessing for us both. Uh, we've we've enjoyed fine wine, especially California wine. Uh, <laughs> In case any of you own a vineyard.
5: Yeah. Three.
2: Uh, and we became... Uh, we've tasted your wine, that's very good. Um, <laughs> Served at both the Bush
5: and Obama White House.
2: <laughs> uh, we just became closer and closer together over the years. We enjoyed working with one another, and we always talked about, well, maybe there'll be a case where we could be on the same side. We were on opposite sides of other cases subsequent to this, but we kept looking for an opportunity and I know you'll get to it, but um, we finally had this opportunity in the Prop 8 case, and maybe that we'll talk some more about that. But it, in the, I mean, is that an accurate reflection
5: from your respect? I mean, it, it, you, or, better, uh, say uh, you better say it's <laughs> I accurate. Mean, I better say it now in
3: of all these people. <laughs> no, but it is. And um, we'd known each other a little bit um, before Bush v. Gore, but it was really during Bush v. Gore that we really became friends. Yeah. Um, you admire somebody who's on the other side who is a good lawyer, and a person of integrity. And I respected the way Ted handled himself. Um, I disagreed with him then, I disagreed with him now on that particular case. But um, I respected his role in the process. Uh, He was a fine advocate uh, for Governor Bush, and he was uh, a person who always handled himself with professionalism and integrity. And so when the time came afterwards, I had no hesitancy at all in telling my Democratic friends that this was a person who I thought would make a fine Solicitor General. And we became uh, closer friends over time. Um, We still haven't gotten on the golf course together, uh, but we do take bike trips with our wives, and we have uh, had several uh, bike trips in several different foreign countries. Um, We've done some sailing together. And so it's a genuine, I think, close friendship and there are many issues that we disagree on, um, but there are a lot of issues that we have common views of. And what we found is that we can work together on those areas where we have common grounds. And I think each, each of us thinks that the country would be a better, more productive place if more people could focus on what we have in common and not where we, where we disagree. And anyone disagrees with that.
5: So, just briefly, so we can move on to the, the guts of this, you're, you're with your sister-in-law at the time, um, and uh, she's with uh, Rob Reiner's wife, Michelle, and they're having a conversation. Uh, and your sister-in-law at the time suggests they should call you. Is that accurate?
2: Yes. Uh, Rob and Michelle Reiner, who are warriors. Um, they put themselves passionately into the things that they believe in, they put their resources, their reputation, they felt that Proposition 8 was so wrong, so un-Californian, so un-American um, in its outcome, uh, that they they were discussing at the Beverly Hills, the Polo Lounge in Beverly... Not so many things have happened at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills. Um, that would be another book. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the Reiners were together with some very close friends talking about this, about how there should be a federal... Challenge to the constitutionality of Proposition 8. It seemed unconstitutional to them, and my ex sister in law overheard them, and she said, um, "You should, you should. T- if you're going to have a case in the United States Supreme Court that might go to the United States Supreme Court, you should talk to my ex brother in law, Ted Olson. He's been there. He's handled cases in the Supreme Court. Um, you should think about him." Um, Rob Reiner said that what went through his mind is that she's just suggested that we hire the devil.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, and Michelle said, uh, said to Kate, are you brain dead? What, what are
1: you
2: about? Uh, it, but anyway, they thought about it and they thought maybe the chemistry of someone who's well known as a conservative. Um, and had been a part of Republican administrations and had been in the Supreme Court, maybe that would be an idea. They they sent someone to talk to me in Washington, and I said, having grown up in California, I was really disappointed in what I still regard as my fellow citizens. I still feel like I'm a Californian, although I've been away from a while.
4: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
7: Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do, and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life.
4: Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
2: And I said, if we're going to do this, I would like to be involved in this. I'd like to do something about Proposition 8, if we can do it right. We have to put the right resources into it. We have to be committed for the long term. This is not something that'll be over in a few months. Um, And I ultimately suggested that because I might be suspect in the eyes of many people because of my background and being on the other side. People don't always understand that lawyers are representing clients, Um, although I certainly was identified with Republican things. I thought it was very important uh, for the chemistry of it to bring in as a full partner uh, someone who had a reputation of being on the other side of the political spectrum. And I immediately thought of David, uh, I thought the symbolism. Of, the, of, of our relationship, coming together, friends who have been on opposite sides, the symbolism that it isn't Republican or Democrat, it's an American issue, it goes across the political spectrum, quit thinking about le, uh, conservatives or liberals, start thinking about human rights, start thinking about the Constitution, and I also thought that we could tr- attract a lot of attention just because of the novelty of us coming together, and by attracting attention, we could give people an opportunity uh, to ask us why we were coming together, why we were doing this thing, and by doing that, speak to the American people as well as speaking to the judiciary, and that that would have a synergistic effect with the court case. And David, your immediate response was yes. Or my, did you my, my, some my
3: immediate thought? response was yes. Um, I had um, I had concluded before that call that this was really the defining civil rights issue of this particular quarter of a century, um, I, mean, I I can't be here without thanking you. Um, as I write in the book, um, uh, my attention to this issue really arose in 2004. Um, like a lot of straight people, uh, I was vaguely in favor of gay rights, um, but I'd re- never really thought about marriage, and um, when you opened up uh, the clerk's office for marriage licenses, And I remember the images on television of people coming here from not only California but all over the country and to some extent all over the world um, and standing in line. And they were so happy to have the opportunity to get married. And I remember talking to my wife, Mary, at the time, saying, what in the world are we doing? Um, Depriving people of the ability to get married when it can make them so happy, it can be so meaningful to them and it doesn't hurt anybody. What in the world are we doing? And uh, that was a, a moment for me that really changed my perspective. And so when Ted called me, uh, I immediately said yes. Yeah, that's
5: it's, and, and I, it
3: begs the question.
5: I was gonna ask you this, Ted, as well. I mean, you know, I have a father, a progressive judge. He was an activist judge before they coined the term. Uh, and he was not supportive when we did what we did in 2004. In fact, uh, it took him years, even after Prop 8, yeah. uh, he kept saying, can't you call it something else? Yeah, that's right. uh, I support gay rights, just call it something else. Um, Catholic Irish background. Were you really there that early? I, mean, I was,
2: in fact, someone reminded me when there was some commentary, what in the world is he doing? Um, Conservatives were saying you're fighting for a new constitutional right. I didn't feel it was a new constitutional right, but David Frum, the journalist, said, "Ted, I remember a dinner we had ten years ago with your with your then wife, my late wife, um, arguing about this, and it was three to one against you, um, and that you were in favor of letting people, allowing people to get married and having that right, because my my thinking is very much like David's. We did never." talked about it um, collectively, but two loving couples coming together uh, that want to form an enduring relationship and to become a part of a community, and raising a family, uh, and paying taxes, and becoming a part of everybody else, and making a unit of themselves, taking on responsibilities, because marriage involves a lot of responsibilities. could be more conservative than that with a conservative value. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the fact that, that, that this country is founded on the ideal of we're all created equal. We say that over again from the Declaration of Independence to, the, to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to the 14th Amendment, and we say it in our court decisions, well, why aren't we living that? Um, and so I felt very strongly, and you mentioned the name. People have said that thing, yeah. you, could, you could let these people do whatever they want, they can share their property, they can have joint tax returns and so forth, let it call, it, call it a civil union or something, but no one celebrates the anniversary of their civil union. Um, yeah. <laughs> no one... No one no, it, it, it is a different thing, even our opponents, because they said marriage is so special, you shouldn't have it, The this, this <laughs> didn't make any sense, and, and I tried to figure out how best to, to, how best to express that to a court, because I, I was actually knowing that I was going to be asked it somehow every place, and I was asked it over and over in court, including the United States Supreme Court. And the, um, that what I said was, uh, what I came up with this is that, um, what if you were allowed to travel, vote participate in democracy. Um, You can have all those things, but you uh, can never call yourself a citizen of the United States. Everyone would know that was second-rate. You were not a part of the community, even though you could do all those things. Well, marriage is very much like that. People respect the institution of marriage. People bond together, uh, and it's a part of a very important institution. The Supreme Court has said 14 times that it's a fundamental right, maybe the most fundamental right that we have. And so the word does mean a lot. So
5: David, a lot of progressive leaders, particularly in the LGBT community, were not with you guys. They felt we needed an incremental approach. We had made great progress, domestic partnerships. Uh, We were making great progress with civil unions, that it was too much, too soon, too fast. And God forbid the two of you partner together and fail to achieve your goal, you'll set back the movement for 20 years. Yeah.
3: And, and those were views that, that we took very seriously. Um, in, in part because they were held by people who had devoted a lot more of their time and their lives and their effort uh, to this struggle than we had. Uh, they were people that were much more experienced uh, with some of these issues than we were. Um, I remember a professor at Yale uh, wrote an article in 2009 saying that the odds uh, were long against us, um, that we would probably fail, and that in failing we would set back um, the movement. Uh, But we ultimately concluded that this was the right case at the right time. We were the right people to to bring it for several reasons. First, as a practical matter, we thought somebody was going to bring this lawsuit. A lot of people in California wanted to get married, There are a lot of lawyers in California, and and we suspected that they would find somebody to bring that lawsuit. And so the issue was not so much is there going to be a lawsuit, but the question is who's going to bring it. And if you're going to bring this kind of lawsuit, you want to win it. And in order to win it, you want to prepare it and try it as best you can. Uh, Ted and I had a lot of experience uh, trying lawsuits. In addition, we each brought with us the resources of our firm. Um, This is not an individual effort. This is a team sport. And uh, we had more than 50 other lawyers and paralegals from our two firms working on this case, in many cases night and day. And the ability for us to marshal the resources on this case, which we knew was going to be heavily defended, Um, was was something that was very important. So we felt we had the resources, we had the experience uh, to really prepare the case well. The second thing was that we looked at the Supreme Court opinions. Uh, We looked uh, in particular at an opinion in Lawrence against Texas. Now this is the one-year anniversary of our victory and of the Windsor Court victory. But it's the 11th year anniversary to the day of Lawrence against Texas, which was the first case in which the United States Supreme Court held that the equal protection and due process clause protections of the United States Constitution protected gay and lesbian citizens from discrimination. Now, the particular issue in that case was simply whether state laws could criminalize intimate gay and lesbian content. But the reasoning of that case was very broad And it was written by Justice Kennedy, and it essentially said, these are citizens like everyone else, they're entitled to the pursuit of happiness like everyone else, you cannot discriminate against them because you disagree with them on the basis of morality or religious (coughs) principles. And Justice Scalia, in dissent, 11 years ago, said, it's over. He said, this, is a, this court decision has just dismantled every constitutional principle that permitted states to distinguish between heterosexuals and homosexuals with respect to marriage. And we think he was right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and there was an, another opinion after that rumor against Colorado also written by Justice Kennedy um, and and we felt that there was a majority on the court um, eh. and we felt there was a majority on the Supreme Court we felt we felt we, we, we felt we could win this case. Um, the the third uh, reason that we went ahead, and David, I'm
5: sorry to cut you off. I mean, sure. so really, at the end of the day, you you really looked to Kennedy as the key decision, particularly with Romer uh, being more contemporary, and then looking back at uh, at that Scalia decision as prescient. He, he was
3: he he was. We, we didn't want we didn't give up on any justice. Um, uh, we frankly had some uh, hopes, uh, serious hopes of getting at least a couple of the justices right. we didn't get. Um, uh, but uh, we, felt, we felt secure um, that with Kennedy, and we thought Kennedy's opinion in Lawrence and Romer was so strong yeah. that we really uh, felt that this was a case that we would, we would prevail. We also thought that when we got to the Supreme Court, uh, we'd have a number of different ways to win. Right. Um, uh, we, we felt good about winning this in the Federal District Court here. We felt good about winning it in the Ninth Circuit. Um, We didn't know, but we thought there was a good chance that the Governor and Attorney General would not appeal, and we thought if they didn't, uh, the proponents of the proposition would not have standing to appeal. And so that uh, in addition to winning it on the merits in the Supreme Court, we could win it on the grounds that the proponents didn't have standing to attack what we thought would be a victory in the district court and court of appeals. So there were a lot of different ways that we could get home. And I think that we thought that with all of those, um, we had a very good chance of invalidating Proposition 8.
4: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
8: Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works you know I would say to young kids you know just kinda of form your own identity and, uh, and you know don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties we have that for you. Spotlight
5: on success and achievement Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go
3: far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. We also, we also thought that the process of the trial and the process that we could bring to the table in terms of discussing this issue was something that we could bring what had been an issue that really had not gotten as much mainstream attention as it deserved. We could help get that into the mainstream of America. Um, Ted wrote a cover story in Newsweek magazine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Street Journal. Uh, We were on television when we brought the case. It was front page news in the uh, New York Times and across the country. Um, We were able to speak to the American people in part because of our odd couple uh, status. I I, I analogize, in one case, to the bearded lady in the circus tent that brings you into the tent and then they try to sell you something. And... um, uh,
2: David's still working on a better metaphor.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. uh, But we did bring them in. We we, 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 We did bring them in, and we did get a chance to talk to them. And and we were convinced that if we could talk to them, we would be able to change people's minds. Uh, This is not a case in which I think if you sit down with people and have a chance to talk to them, there are two ways that you can come out. Um, I I think I'm pretty good at figuring out what the best argument is on the other side. Uh, As a trial lawyer, you have to do that. You want to know how to meet it, if you can't meet it, you want to know how to obscure it, um, <laughs> uh, but you, want to, you, need to, you need to be able to know what the other side is going to argue in order to deal with it. This was a situation in which there wasn't a substantive argument on the other side. They had a bumper sticker. Right. Marriage is between a man and a woman, that's, yeah. not, that's not an analysis, that's the conclusion. Um, there, was, there, was no, there was no legal precedent there, there was no policy there, there was no justification there. Um, uh, and I believe in the basic fairness of the American people. There's always going to be a fringe that you're not going to get. Um, I, I said the other day that you know, a certain percentage of American people still think the world is flat. And um, so there's always a fringe you're not going to get. But I was convinced that we could convince the vast majority of American people if we can just get them to pay attention to this issue. And I thought we could, and I thought that would change the character of the debate. So it was, it was you see, two challenges. One, you had to win in court,
5: but you had to change the proverbial court public opinion. Exactly. And with that, you had a strategy then that you attached to this early on. But there was a lot of controversy around that strategy, i.e., there were some that were asserting that you were interested in moving the case through motions, not necessarily a trial early on. Uh, eventually we went to trial, Judge Walker. Uh, what was the machinations of those discussions? Were those overplayed? Is it always a trial that you were after? And were you disappointed as a consequence, extension of uh, David's point, when it was not allowed to be televised?
2: We, well, let me. The first part of it was we, when we filed this case, we thought. Uh, most of these cases, civil rights cases, have been brought. People file a case and then there's motions, you know, and the judge looks at the arguments on either side and can decide the case, and then you're, you're on a faster track. You're on to the Court of Appeals, right. uh, and then you're maybe on to the Supreme Court. So initially, we both sides, even the, our opponents, thought that this was a case that could be handled on the form of motions. We were assigned to Chief Judge Walker in this case. Um, um, and, and it was turned out to be very, very fortunate, because he is a trial lawyer, or has been, he's resigned uh, by now, but he's, he spent 20-some years in a trial court, he said to us when we came before him early in the case, I'm a trial court, it's how we do this is more important than the decision, because the decision is going to be made at a higher level someday. He said, I want a trial, I want to hear evidence on marriage on psychology, on raising children, on the politics of this, um, on the characteristics, on the impact of discrimination. I want a trial. I'll give you a trial quickly." He said this. This was the summer. We filed it in May. This was July or August. He said, I'll give you a trial in January, but I want a trial. Um, So, that wasn't exactly what we had in the mind at the beginning, but we embraced that because that would give us an opportunity to put on trial discrimination and the impact of discrimination and the harm that's done. All of these things now, we didn't foresee everything. But we did think this was a great opportunity. We thought we had the resources to find the best experts in the world. And our opponents complained bitterly about the schedule. We don't have time to do this. We don't have time to get experts to do expert reports, to take depositions, still get to trial. And we kept saying, we're going to stand on that schedule and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. So we were very happy about that. Once the judge had decided that's what we wanted to do, we embraced it. The judge decided that this is an important constitutional question involving tens of thousands, ultimately millions of people in the United States, and then the people can't get into the courtroom. They should be in the courtroom because there should be a streaming of the trial outside to the public. We thought that was fantastic. Our opponents hated the idea, and maybe, (laughs) uh, and and, you know, it tells you a lot, Uh, uh, a lot that we thought. They were complaining bitterly there's gonna be a trial and and then the public is gonna be coming into the trial. What could be more American than a trial? Um, (laughs) A a real back and forth evidence goes on. People would testify and be cross-examined and things like that. And the American people should see this. If you don't want the American people to see what's going on in that courtroom, what's the matter with your ideas? You know, is there something wrong about your side of this case if you don't want people to see it? Ultimately, um, because I know you've got a lot to cover, the Supreme Court stopped the idea of televising the trial outside the courtroom on the first day of the trial. But the cameras stayed in the courtroom. That that tape still exists, it's still, no one's seen it. But in a way, that was a benefit, too, because um, 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 Lance Black, the the playwright, took pieces of... The the screenwriter took pieces of the trial and made it into a play called Eight, which has been performed all over the country, so people have seen it. Um, HBO followed us with cameras everywhere, except for, to some degree, the courtroom. And they made this fabulous documentary, which came out. Earlier this week, called The Case Against Eight. And if you haven't seen it, for heaven's sakes, see it. It will tear you to pieces. It's yeah. so beautifully done. Um, and so that, and then, and it also gave us an opportunity to write a book, <laughs> 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 which, which we want to talk about. But the, the um, <laughs> no, but what the, the story of this case is told, we still think that the American people should see the trial. Uh, Because it's so important, but uh, there are other ways in which, including events like this, uh, that can give the American people an insight into the case.
5: Well, you're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. Today we're discussing the future of marriage equality in the United States with noted attorneys David Boies and Ted Olson, who won the Supreme Court decision striking down California's Prop 8. I'm Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, and you can also find a video, extension of the narrative here, of Commonwealth Club programs online, at the club's YouTube channel, Redeeming the Dream. David, you have a long history of civil rights. You were there in Mississippi when it mattered. Um, Redeeming the Dream means a lot to a lot
3: of people. Uh, What was the
5: impetus of thinking behind the title of the book? It
3: it was obviously, um, to some extent, related to Martin Luther King's dream of equality. It was also related to the dream that was spawned here in California, um, when gay and lesbian citizens were given the right to get married. And they did get married, and they did by the California Supreme Court in May of 2008. Um, And then that dream was taken away from them uh, by Proposition 8. And so our attack on Proposition 8 was a way of trying to redeem that dream of equality that people had and had experienced in California. And one of the arguments that we made is that you could not consistent with due process and equal protection take that right away.
5: So what in the process of putting a book together like this, I mean, there's been, you know, and we've had now the, the documentaries come out, the plays come out. Um, we all, many of us in this room certainly, but the country lived through this process. We, extraordinary what's happened just in the last 60 days Uh, I was just looking at Arkansas, Idaho, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Utah, Indiana that's all since May federal judges opining on this just since May not of last year last month uh, (laughs) we reached a remarkable tipping point Uh, so when you're putting this book together what were you trying to achieve I mean it's an inside story of your experience of, of the, the sort of application and inspiration. Um, what, what would we? What's the takeaway with the book? What, what can we learn from this book well, uniquely? Well, I should
2: mention also Joe Becker, New York Times uh, award-winning writer, also followed us through this case right. and, and wrote a book called Forcing the Spring, which came out a month or two ago. And it's a beautiful book. What David and I were trying to achieve is a couple of things. We wanted to tell the story of how we structured our strategy. Um, This is something that is important to the extent that people can learn by our mistakes and by our successes with respect to what we were thinking, why we put it together. Um, We wanted to teach people about what we had learned about ourselves, about our country, about discrimination. The trial itself was a tremendous eye-opener about all of these so many fascinating things, and we learned a lot. We wanted to share our feelings with the American people in the form of a book, and you have to put that in writing and give people a chance to do it. And we wanted to tell the story, and the movie does it better than we could do it, but we wanted to tell the story of the plaintiffs, Chris and Sandy and Jeff and Paul, how much we grew to love them, um, how much their passion, their commitment, their dedication, and they're telling their story in court and taking on the burden of being plaintiffs in a civil rights lawsuit that took so long, that's had ups and downs and um, tension and excitement, and it takes a lot out of you to do that and to be put in the spotlight. We wanted to tell the story the best we could from our perspective uh, of, of those individuals and what they went through and how they made the case with their testimony, with their uh, their life story. And so all of those things, I'm not so sure we accomplished all of those things in the, in the, in, in, you know, as good as we could, but we did it the best we could because we felt that this was something that would meant so much to us, we had to put it in writing and make it.
4: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com.
7: Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life.
4: Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW.
6: Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24 7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
5: David, I imagine this had to change you pretty profoundly. The experiences, people coming up to you. Uh, I mean, this is not an ab, I mean, so much of your work and I don't mean to diminish the other work, but it's more academic, uh, theoretical, but you're arguing here. But when you got deeper into this, I imagine uh, there were layers of this that you never could have seen coming
3: that must have moved you profoundly. There, re- there really were. Um, when we started, I think both Ted and I were committed to this as a matter of constitutional principle, as a matter of basic fairness, as a matter of constitutional law. Um, But as we got into the case and as we got to know our plaintiffs and as we began to identify them, and I've said many times before that they started out as our clients they became our friends and they ended up our family. And we shared their pain, we shared the damage that the discrimination did. We moved from a intellectual uh, case, about which we felt passionately even in the beginning, to a highly emotional case where we we felt that our future and the future of our families were tied up in what happened in this case. And that's that's only increased as time has gone on and as We see and we talk to, every day, uh, people whose lives have been changed. uh, Not just by what we've done, but by what all of the people who have devoted so much time and effort uh, to achieving equality over the last several decades uh, have worked to do. And it has been, I think, for Ted and myself, uh, the most satisfying case that we've ever been, been involved in.
5: And Ted, for you particularly, not without consequences, I mean, Rush Limbaugh, I Rush know Limbaugh. it's you see, just yeah, it's not a punchline. Doesn't like uh, I was gonna, Rush about comma. Doesn't but, I mean, like me anymore. Yeah no I mean but you know yeah he said right away he said you were one of us. This notion of betrayal. Uh, I imagine that I mean he amplified it as he often does, verbosely. But others I imagine quietly, uh, folks that you were very close to, people you admired, uh, that animus probably still remains. That I mean is this cost you professionally? Have you been able to repair those relationships? Have you been able to uh, convince them of the merits of your argument? What, what's, I mean, in a broader sense, how has it impacted you even, not just personally, which I'd love to hear, but also professionally?
2: Well, I don't worry about things like that. I really don't. Um, the, there have been some people that didn't understand that did dig- disagree. Uh, I looked upon that in large part as an opportunity to explain Why I felt that David mentioned the article, I wrote the article uh, for Newsweek about the conservative case for gay marriage. I figured that this was an opportunity. I have deep convictions about the rightness of this. Um, It's only reinforced every time I look at Chris and Sandy uh, or Jeff and Paul. But I knew that this was right, Um, and I knew that I wouldn't really, if given the opportunity, to do something about it, and if I walked away from it because other people didn't think that it was the right thing to do or that I would become unpopular, I would not really be able to live with myself. Um, this is something that is exceedingly important, and yes, you get some emails or this, that, that sort of thing and so forth, but we're overwhelmed by the good feeling that comes out of people Walking past me on, a, sitting in an airplane and doing like this, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, and the things that the things that we hear last night here um, at the LGBT community center, just up the road um, on Market Street, we were with 125 or so people uh, that talked about with us about their experiences, um, and it was extraordinarily gratifying. Not a moment really, or a day goes by without us um, hearing from somebody that, that uh, we may have touched in a small way. That completely eclipses any professional or personal. Right. Um, Amen. Amen. What, yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh,
5: did you choose the plaintiffs or did the plaintiffs choose you?
3: It was a combination. Um, one of the things that uh, the plaintiffs had to be uh, satisfied with is the case that we were going to bring and how we were going to represent them. But One of the things we also had to be sure of is that we were able to identify plaintiffs that were going to have the strength of character and the staying power and the courage really to go through what was, we knew was going to be an arduous process. Um, we knew that this was a process that was going to take years, not months. Uh, we, we knew that we needed to have people who had a commitment to their relationship so that that relationship could withstand that time and that pressure. Um, we need to have, needed to have people whose families would accept and support um, the difficulties that they would have to go through. We needed to have people who had the inner character and the strength to be able to endure what we knew was going to be a lot of harassment, um, a lot of attacks, uh, a lot of vile kind of things um, that they were were subjected to. You would not want to play in a family audience uh, some of the things, messages that were left on their answering machines. and We needed to have people who would stick with it through that. And we found in in our four plaintiffs, Chris and Sandy and Jeff and Paul, four extraordinary human beings who were able with intelligence and humor to describe our case and describe what they felt, describe why this was an important issue, describe what they were being deprived of by the discrimination and how that had hurt them and damaged them, but also to describe the kind of higher arc that they and others could have if this discrimination were eliminated. Uh, Ted and I have often said that the best argument that we could ever make would be just to play the testimony of Chris and Sandy and Jeff and Paul that they gave. We called them, the four of them, as our first witnesses. And those of you who are lawyers in the audience know that you don't generally do that. That's a, that's a dangerous thing to do because if they don't come across perfectly, you may have lost a momentum that you never recover in the trial. And so it was, a, in some sense, as some people would say, it was a risky uh, strategy to put them on first. But we felt it was important to put a human face on this discrimination, and to have the judge listen to real people describe in real terms what this case was about. And there was not a dry eye in the courtroom, and I include the people on the other side, I include the lawyers on the other side, um, listening to that testimony. And you'll get a sense of it in this HBO documentary. Um, it, it It doesn't come across with, as much dramatic impact as the trial did but it comes across with a lot of dramatic impact and i don't believe that you can watch that documentary and i don't believe you could have listened to the plaintiffs in our trial no matter what your going in position was and not end up rooting for them and that and that was i think our most powerful evidence and it was something that was it was critical for us to find the right people to do that. The people who would be able to carry that message and carry it in a sustained way.
5: Well, we're blessed to have Chris and Sandy here. Uh, and I know we put a mic very close to you. I'd love uh, You don't get off uh, without, you know, Uh Would you guys like to, to say anything? Um, and first of all, thank you so much for taking the time here. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for stepping up.
3: Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
4: so much for tuning in today for more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed you can head to michellemiao.com see you all next week